1 Kings chapter 12, verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt, for he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus you shall speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, come to me again on the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel, to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives or the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again, according to the word of the Lord. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there, and he went out from there and built Penuel. 
And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar, so he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you and praise you for your word. Thank you that we are able to gather here tonight to listen to it. Lord God, I really pray that you would help us as we go through these very difficult and dense passages in 1 Kings. Heavenly Father, as we look at uh, what sin can achieve, Father, may we be more in awe by what grace can achieve. Lord God, we pray that you'd help us now in your strong name. Amen. Okay, um, this story is going to give you a good insight into what my home life was like (laughs) when I was a kid growing up. (coughs) Here it goes. Every Sunday night, uh, me, along with my um, two sisters and my brother and my mum and my dad, we would all sit around my grandparents' television and we would turn on to ITV and watch the well-loved program Heartbeat. Anyone with me? Yeah? No? Okay. And with with all the banality and the ridiculousness that that program and the soap like that can offer, there is one episode that sticks in my mind that was really quite powerful. And the storyline of this particular episode concerned itself with the foot-and-mouth outbreak in rural England and Wales during the 1960s. Some of you may remember that that time. Well, the the horrible bovine disease, foot-and-mouth, spread quickly between farms. It laid claim to hundreds of cattle death. And this particular disease is so fast and so potent that once the disease is detected on land, entire herds of cattle had to be killed and burnt within 24 hours to stop its spread. Hundreds of farmers lost their livelihoods overnight. It was truly a devastating time to be a farmer. Well, in this particular episode of of this TV program, there was a farmer who found that his herd had contracted foot and mouth, and he couldn't work out how. He'd been so careful. He had disinfected himself when he was walking between farms. He was meticulous in his planning. He built this huge farm over decades with hard work and real care. But the worst-case scenario happened, and he, along with his sons, had to slaughter his entire stock. And they loaded up these carcasses and started burning them on an enormous funeral pyre. And as the investigators were trying to work out how the disease got into the farm, it turns out that all the while he and his sons had been so careful, the farmer's wife had been conducting an affair with a neighboring farmer. And in her secret traveling between farms, she had single-handedly spread the disease, which wiped out her husband's farm overnight. 
And the final scene of the episode is really arresting. The, the camera pans back over the Yorkshire countryside with this farmer's cattle burning on the hillside in the distance for a whole mile as his livelihood and his life's work and his children's future goes up in smoke. And all you see in the middle distance is this farmer walking off to his cow shed where he will shoot himself. An entire family, an entire business, an entire livelihood, an entire inheritance, all literally burning on a hillside, turned into ashes and dust, all because of one couple's sin. Now, that image is both powerful and quite devastating. But that is exactly what we now begin to see in 1 Kings. We are now party to the incredible destructive legacy of sin. Because sin does leave a legacy. It has long-lasting effects. And this legacy is only ever destructive. And just as with this poor farmer and his whole life going up in smoke, along with all that he wanted his sons and his wife to have, and with all the protection that that entailed, so we see that this is exactly what is happening now to Israel. Because of one man's sin, because of Solomon turning his heart away from the Lord, an entire nation is being rapidly diseased as the effects of sin permeate like an endemic through this rotten, once mighty nation. And the covenant, the inheritance that God wanted his people to have, this godly kingdom, is metaphorically being burned before our very eyes. Here we read tonight that this kingdom is divided. The outlook is bleak. The future is completely unknown. And with that as our backdrop, let's have a look at what is happening in our passage. As Scott read to us, the very first thing we see of this story of the new king, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, it's not a great one. And this is our first point tonight. We read that Rehoboam, this new king, is foolish, but that God is sovereign. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage. So what I'm going to do with your permission is I'm going to walk through what is going on here in chapter 12. So keep your Bibles open as I do that. These passages can be quite dense and quite hard to follow. We just need to get the story straight in our minds. So keep your Bibles open and I'm going to walk through it. And um, every now and again, we're going to pop up a map behind me as well, which is all very exciting. Right, we start off with Rehoboam, Solomon's son, verse 1. He is made king of the whole of Israel in, place, in a place called Shechem. Shechem is a bit like Edinburgh's Glasgow. It's sort of the second city in, in, in Israel, right in the center of the country, as we'll see later. And immediately this happens, along comes a guy called Jeroboam. Now, remember him. We heard about him last week. He is the servant of Solomon, who, through a prophet in chapter 11, has been promised by God, because of Solomon's sin, to have ten tribes of Israel to himself upon Solomon's death. So it makes sense that he is going to rock up and see what's going to happen. But as soon as he arrives in the land, he is called for, in verse 3, by the people of Israel, because there's a problem. They effectively want him to be their spokesperson to bring up with them an issue they have with this new king. And the issue is that Solomon has worked them too hard and they want to break. They offer their continued service as loyal citizens to this new king if the king promises to lighten their workload. That makes sense. 
Now, Rehoboam, the new king, sends the people away and asks them to come back in three days as he consults with his advisors on what to do. Now, the solution to us may be clear, but this is where Rehoboam's folly comes into play. He makes a right hash of this decision, doesn't he? He calls his father's old counselors, first of all. These guys are wise, and they wisely say, literally in the Hebrew, in verses 7 and 8, if you give them, the people, this service of one day by alleviating their workload, then they will give you full service every day of their lives. It's a no-brainer, Rehoboam. But Rehoboam decides to go elsewhere for a second opinion. And so he turns to his cronies, the lads that he had grown up with. And their advice is starkly different, isn't it? Don't give in, they say. Use your royal weight over this people. Hit them hard, all stick and no carrot. And of course, this is the advice that he chooses to go with. Look at the arrogance of these men in verse 10. They say to him, say to these people, Rehoboam, my little finger is bigger than my dad's thigh. (laughs) How childish. And also, I cannot tell you actually how crude that sentence is, if it was translated as it could be. You can only imagine what part of the male anatomy finger might have been replaced with, which is in the Hebrew. In other words, Rehoboam is crude and crass. He is saying, you think my dad was great and mighty and a hard taskmaster? You haven't seen anything yet. And this is the advice that he chooses to go with. This is what he tells his people. He's not only going to ignore their requests, but he will increase their workload. And it doesn't take a genius to see what the response to this is going to be. But before we get to that, let's stop for a second and take stock as we linger over verse 14. If ever Rehoboam had a chance to show what he was about, it is in what he does in making this decision. But as we begin to see very clearly, from here on in through the whole of 1 Kings, we have the classic example of like father, like son. Except we don't get the gradual decline we did with Solomon's descent. We see it here in Rehoboam, front and center, right at the very beginning of his reign. Foolishness and sin is gaining ground fast in this relatively young kingdom, like our disease. It entraps the future generations faster and more potently. Rehoboam is arrogant. He is petulant, hungry for his peers' favor, incredibly crude. He's crass. These are not the qualities of a king, let alone a king of Israel. Rehoboam is incredibly foolish. And to a certain extent, this is very easy application for us, isn't it? We have to be so careful with sin. We have to treat it so carefully, so seriously. Looking at Rehoboam's example, we can ask ourselves, who do we spend time with? Who do we follow? Who do we ask for wisdom? Whose counsel do I seek? Who do I want to impress? Am I capable of making good decisions regardless of what people think of me? How do I treat people under my care? Or how do I be a good boss for those of us who are in that position? There's a whole wealth of applications that come out of, of looking at what Rehoboam did so badly. We need to heed these. This is really serious stuff. But 
there is something else that is fundamentally more important going on here. Because as we move from verse 14, we linger over verse 15. And let me read that for us. So the king did not listen to the people. Why? For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam, son of Nabat. Now, can you see what's going on here? Yes, Rehoboam is extremely arrogant and cocky and foolish and sinful. But God uses this for his purposes. And as so often as happens in the Old Testament narratives, we are allowed to see what other history books don't tell us. The view from behind the curtain, the view from God's perspective, the view of what's really going on. And so as Rehoboam shows a lack of wisdom and is fully responsible for what happens next, at exactly the same time we see that God is bringing about what his plan was all along. And what do we do with that? Well, we take the warning. We are going to see what foolish sin can really do to a nation. But let us also take the encouragement Encouragement may not be the first thing that you think of when we read these passages, but we are encouraged. Why? Because who is involved in this horrendous mess? God. Who would I rather have to be in control of this mess? Rehoboam or God? It's a genuine comfort to know that God's got all this in hand. That with Rehoboam's faster descent into sin and foolishness, as the legacy of sin creeps like gangrene into this nation, God is completely in control. Is the divided kingdom going to be a bad thing? Yes. But Yahweh is involved. This means that he is still a faithful God sticking to his promises like glue, sticking to what he said, bringing about what he said would happen. He is still resolutely trustworthy. And for us, that is a huge encouragement as we see the foolishness of the world playing out before our our, our TV screens on the BBC. And we think, what is going to happen? God is in control. But more pertinently, as I look at the church... And I see foolish world leaders that make decision that seems to harm the church. And I see foolish church leaders making decisions that seem to harm the church. What do I really see? A God who is completely in control. We're allowed to see behind the curtain of these narratives. God is in control. As Dale Ralph Davis says of this verse, Human hubris never catches Yahweh by surprise. Big men are simply small servants of God's powerful word. For for, for the people of God who would have been reading 1 Kings, they would have been enormously encouraged that looking back at this foolish king that they would have known about, oh my goodness, God was in control all along. I am enormously encouraged that as I look at the church and I worry about it, I see that this mighty God is in control all along. And this brings us swiftly to our next point. Because what is the outcome of Rehoboam's foolishness? What is 
In other words, the direction of God's plan. Well, it is this divided kingdom. Our next point, 12, 16 to 24. Again, let's walk through these verses, 16 to 24. Let me tell the story as you look through what's going on. Now we have all of Israel... And that just means a lot of people, Israel is represented here by the heads of the tribes and all the important people from around the nation. They're all standing before King Rehoboam, listening to his decision. And as you can imagine, they are not happy and things start to kick off. Listen to what the people say in verse 16. This is devastating. What portion do we have here in David, they say? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look to your own house, David. The people cry out against David's house, hopelessly represented by Rehoboam. And they understandably rebel. And they, as one, march back to their tents. They go back to their cities. They do not want to know the line of David. And as the northerners head north, turning their backs to the king, those in Judah and Benjamin stay under their king in Jerusalem. And so, verse 17, Rehoboam ends up with the one tribe that Jerusalem is actually situated in, Judah. But Rehoboam tries to get them back, verse 18. He sends a man called Adoram, who seems to be the new taskmaster over forced labor, possibly to sort of hammer out this rebellion by trying to enforce the king's will, by getting people to get into this labor program. Whatever he does, it goes disastrously wrong. He is stoned to death in utter defiance to the king, And because of this act, it seems Rehoboam loses his bottle and flees back to Jerusalem. Now, a little bit of a break. We're going to have a quick look at a map. I I, I hope this is helpful. I hope you can all see this. We have Israel to the north and we have Judah to the south. Confusingly, Judah is made up of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, but it's always called the lone tribe of Judah. Benjamin is sort of subsumed into Judah. This is Judah. Um, You can see Jerusalem here. Um, Here is Bethel, which comes very important later, and up here is Shechem. Now, when all this is going on, this is all taking place in Shechem. So this is where uh, the coronation of Rehoboam has happened, and this is where the rebellion is kicking off. And as soon as Rehoboam's envoy is stoned, he realizes that he is in rebel territory. So he has to rush from Shechem to Jerusalem and establish his kingdom here. He can now no longer go back into Israel. And Shechem is going to be where the new king is crowned. And that is Jeroboam. As soon as the people realize that Rehoboam has gone, they call on Jeroboam, who has been their spokesperson, to be king in Rehoboam's place. We now have, for the first time, and this is going to continue right the way through till the exile, two kingdoms. Israel, the ten tribes in the north, and Judah, the two tribes in the south. Thanks, Alan. This glorious God-given kingdom of promise is broken directly in two. And David's name is Mud. The great King David, who is God's right-hand man, he has been rejected by the people because of the sin of Solomon and Rehoboam. It's really sad. It's also ruthlessly quick, isn't it? As the kings descend further and further into sin, so the consequences of that sin come thick and fast. Almost before he can react to the people, Rehoboam has lost his kingdom. The legacy of sin is destructive. 
It also has long arms. Rehoboam is reaping a whole world of pain and division as his heart, like his father before him, is divided and arrogant and unwise. And God, in his sovereignty, tears the kingdom from his grasp and leaves him with a lone tribe. It's ruthless. Now, as much as I hope we've got what's going on and understanding how this all happens and we get the story, there is something more important again going on here. Let me draw your attention to the second half of verse 20. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. Now, this is a desperately sad verse. It actually sums up everything that's going on. The line of David appears to have given up. But it is not completely severed. There is that one tribe that has not broken away. Now, remember last week and the prophecy given to Jeroboam by the prophet Ahijah. Remember Ahijah cut up his cloak? Do you remember that? Into 12 pieces. He gave 10 pieces to Jeroboam as a sign that he will take the 10 northern tribes as his kingdom. And Ahijah keeps two scraps of cloth in his hand as a sign of the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that will remain in the line of David. Can you see then that as much as the terrible things that God said would happen to God's people has happened, so the great thing that God said would happen to God's people has happened. A tribe has not rebelled. God has kept his promise of there being a remnant who will continue the house of David. God remains a faithful, promise-keeping God, therefore. He defiantly remains a God of grace. Now, there's a fourfold reference to David in this passage, isn't there? Let's look at it. It's all negative. Verse 16. What portion do we have in David, they say? Verse 16 again. Look now to your own house, David. Verse 19. So Israel has been in rebellion to this day against the house of David. Verse 20. There was none that followed the house of of David. Again, as we have done every Sunday night with this book, we listen to these words and we go back to the Davidic promise in 2 Samuel 7, which Solomon, remember, prayed over the temple as he dedicated it. It says this, and your house and your kingdom, David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall forever be established. That is absolutely not what it looks like is going on here. It looks like the kingdom is gone. And not even with a sense of sorrow of the people. They hate the line of kings of David. They hate his house. They have turned against great King David. But there are these six words that counterbalance these four negative comments. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. Judah summed up in just six words in the passage. In the midst of this enormous rebellion, literally millions of people turning their back on the line of David, with David's grandson showing himself to be crude, irresponsible, foolish. In the middle of all this sadness and chaos, Judah will remain. And so in the middle of this mess, again, we see God working fully to maintain his promises. And as innocuously as the two scraps of cloth that were mentioned last week in chapter 11... So here, in the innocuous use of six words, we see again how God has not given up on his people. The kingdom is divided, but the house of David does remain. 
And though the king of David's house is incredibly foolish, God is fully sovereign, working out his will. Now, can you pick up the pattern? We are beginning to see what the narrative, the rest of the narrative of one kings will look like. From here on in, chapter upon chapter will produce a list of terribly unwise kings, all sinning in ways that were unimaginable by the king before them, each worse than the last. Both nations, Israel, Judah, playing off against each other, sin and idolatry and rampant unfaithfulness crossing the border like disease crossing through skin. And these terrible acts of egregious kings will dominate our eyeline for weeks to come. But all the while... Humming in the background with constant regularity like an imperceptibly quiet ticking clock is the faithfulness of a loving, patient, steadfast, gracious God who is bringing about his purposes and who is fulfilling his promises. And it is this pattern, this paradigm of bad king after worse king after worser king that we come to now as we turn our sights away from Judah to this new northern kingdom for the first time, the kingdom of Israel. Read with me as we head into our last point. Um, Verses 25 to 33, I'll read them all out. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go out to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did the same in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made there. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, in a month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Now this needs a little explanation, does it? Jeroboam is blasphemous. Jeroboam's first act as king is to profoundly blaspheme the name of the Lord his God by building two calves and shrines at each end of the kingdom. Dan is in the extreme north, Bethel is in the extreme south. Just because he didn't want the lure of the temple in Jerusalem to win back the people to King Rehoboam. It's not even subtle, is it? It's not gradual like Solomon. It's not mere foolishness and childishness like Rehoboam. It's extreme idolatry from day one. And we know what's going on here, don't we? What passage is ringing like an alarm bell in our heads? (laughs) Exodus 32. 
the building of the golden calf by Aaron at the base of Mount Sinai, whilst Moses is gone up the mountain, the calf that caused the people to fall into extreme sin, the calf over which Aaron spoke the words, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The calf which caused half of the people to die in one night in the ensuing judgment. So Jeroboam does the same. He doesn't even hide what he's doing. He literally quotes Aaron, word for word. Verse 29. You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It is a complete abandonment of the God of the house of David, turning his back on the God who really brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And with such bitter contempt, I've had enough of Yahweh, now to our own gods. That is where the legacy of sin leads someone. To turn your heart against God. This is terrifying. And he doesn't just set up these calves in high places, does he? Note what he does. In verse 31, he builds his own temple. He appoints his own priests, not from the Levites. He appoints his own feasts that he nicks from Judah. He offers up his own sacrifices. He creates this own national festival that he made up, devised from his own heart for the people of Israel. Who alone has the right to build a temple? Who alone had the right to choose priests? Who alone had the right to appoint festivals? God alone. The language that describes what Jeroboam is doing here is exactly the same language that describes God instituting his covenant practices all the way through Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Jeroboam is instituting his own religion. Jeroboam is making himself, therefore, not just king over this new people, but effectively their God. This is the most extreme case of blasphemy we've seen yet, and he is the first king of Israel. And all because he did not want his people running over to Jerusalem and worshipping in the temple. The legacy of sin runs deep and fast, and it is dangerous. We are not even a generation away from Solomon, and the northern kingdom is in complete defiance to God. What is going to happen? What is going to happen to the arrogant, petulant king of Judah? What is going to happen to the arrogant, blasphemous king of Israel? Well, chapter 13, verse 1a is going to happen to them both. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord. You see, there is still something yet to come in this sorry saga of God's people. And we can visibly see, can't we, that God's kings are hopeless. And as the rot of sin sets in like a disease and spreads and eats its way over time, as the kingdom seems to be metaphorically burning in the distance, we are starting to see the beginning of the end of the age of the king. We are now turning to the age of the prophet, God's kings have failed so very badly. And with each new generation of kin, sin gets deeper. Idolatry gets stronger. They get weaker. Their hearts get harder. And as with the kings, so with the people. 
The sin of the people gets deeper. The idolatry of the people gets stronger. Their resolve gets weaker. Their hearts get harder. As Rehoboam is foolish, so are the people. As Jeroboam is blasphemous, so are the people. But God's word is near. And against the backdrop of the failure of the line of kings comes the age of the prophet, these men of God who will take up the mantle that the king was meant to have and become God's mouthpieces in a disgustingly disobedient generation. These men will speak God's words like never before, not just to the people but to the kings themselves. They will quite literally speak truth to power. And they will be the reminder of the covenant that God has with his people. They will be the reminder of the people of where they are failing. They will will remind the nation of God's judgment. They will remind Israel and Judah of God's incredible grace. No longer to the king, now to the prophet. The line of godly rule has effectively ended. But the transforming, powerful work of God's work through God's prophets has only just begun. And so we start this age here tonight in our text. As this is exactly what happens with both Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Verse 22. Just as Rehoboam is about to go on another incredibly foolish crusade to get Israel back by force, we read this. The word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, a prophet. Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up and fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. And incredibly here, Rehoboam listens. It's actually quite astonishing. We have such a low opinion of our kings that we actually don't expect that. Why does Rehoboam listen to God at this point? Well, two things. Ultimately, firstly, because that's how God wants it. He's he's bringing about his purposes. He doesn't want Rehoboam to keep on fighting. That's, That's not worth it. But secondly, Rehoboam also seems to be listening because he's he's getting the wisdom from God's word. Maybe he's seeing what God has done, just how big God really is. Maybe he's seeing for the first time where his incredible folly has left him. Maybe he just knows he's a beaten man. But in verse 24, he listened to the word of the Lord. That is what the word of God is going to do. It's going to change hearts. It's going to inspire people so that they can listen wisely to his word. It's going to offer repentance and a chance to turn back to the living God. Pinpricks of grace. Moments of clarity and understanding in these kings. Tiny moments in the text of one kings that shows that this God has not given up on the house of David. He has not given up on his promises. He has not given up on individuals. He will change hearts and minds. All because God, through his prophets, has not given up speaking his word to them. He will continue to speak truth and grace and mercy and love and promise to a fallen, desperate people and to their fallen, desperate kings. And as with Rehoboam, so is Jeroboam. Verse 1 of chapter 13. In the midst of this incredible blasphemy, and behold, a man of God, a prophet, come out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel to confront a king. 
Just as God has not left himself without a remnant in the world, in Judah, so God does not leave himself without a mouthpiece to his people in the prophets. And and finally tonight, why is this? Why does God continue to try so hard to be heard? Do you know what Israel means? God strives. Why does he strive so hard to contend with his people? Because he loves them. Because he promised he would be with them. And because there is to be a greater king. It's at times like these in the biblical narrative where the Christmas texts leap leap to mind with all the joy that they were intended to be given and received. Micah 5. But you, O Bethlehem, who are from the least from among the rulers of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from the ancient days. And this king shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And his people shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this king shall be their peace. This is what the remnant of Judah, this tiny Judean town, Bethlehem, is going to produce. The king. From the obscurity of a kingdom that looked even more rubbish than it does in one king's, we get the king, Jesus Christ. You see, Rehoboam and Jeroboam can besmirch the plans and promises and covenant and kingdom of God, but they cannot destroy it. God is a covenant-keeping, loving, gracious God. And in the realm of the incredible sin of his people, and the incredible consequences that come out of this sin, and in the realm of this incredible legacy, his grace and his care stands all the more vibrant against it, as he faithfully, so faithfully, in the midst of incredible hatred towards him and his prophets, speaks a word of hope and of peace and of real joy. He shows incredible graciousness to Rehoboam and Jeroboam by allowing them to repent through the prophet. And in the midst of times like these, as we look back on them, as the people who are reading this for the first time looking back at them, that's the message I need to be hearing. That there will be a kingdom of security and peace. To the people of God who are aware of God's promises at the time, standing there watching this, wondering about what was happening as they were seeing the demise of their kingdom, I wonder if seeing this one lone tribe continue on, carrying on in the face of incredible opposition that was from David, I wonder if there was real hope. And so there is hope for us, because we see what this act of God produced. King Jesus, from the line of Judah. And so we've got more reason to trust in God tonight when it looks like his promises aren't being fulfilled in the church, in the world, when we feel like we're really under the cosh because we've seen Jesus. What, what we see what these promises were talking about. We see what this king was really like. Not a headstrong, arrogant, crass king who subjected his people to intense suffering, but the servant king. The king who was himself subject by his subjects to intense suffering. That's what the Davidic king looks like. 
Remember, the fate of the people is tied in with the fate of the king. With a foolish king, you have a foolish people. With a blasphemous king, you have a blasphemous people. With a truly righteous, peaceful king, you have a truly righteous, peaceful people. And that is now our kingdom. It means that no matter how bad things get, no matter how much God's promises seem far away, as a church, no matter how much we are under the cosh from the world, we know we are safe and secure because we know the king, the Micah king, the king who is not Rehoboam or Jeroboam. It also means that no matter how bad things get, no matter how much we are under the cosh from the world, God is sovereignly in control. And as he was powerful and faithful enough to bring about Christ from the desperation of 1 Kings 12 with this kingdom literally in pieces, so he is working tirelessly in the background of our experiences now making sure that his promises to his church, a church that will endure in the world till he comes again, will come to pass. The title of this sermon is The Destructive Legacy of Sin, and it is a powerful legacy. We have to be so careful. But there is a legacy which is infinitely more powerful, more far-reaching and more potent than sin could ever produce. And that is the restorative legacy of grace. Enacted here in one kings by God, shown humanly in Jesus Christ on the cross, and now at work in this new kingdom through the power on the Spirit. And now remembered tonight in the eating of the bread and the wine. The reason we can come to the table tonight is because of this incredible legacy of grace. This is the product of that. I'm allowed to sit here with you and I'm allowed to partake in this, remembering what Christ has done for me. That's what's going on in 1 Kings 12. A pointer to this. And this is so serious. We do not do this lightly tonight. We come remembering just what God has had to do to get us to this place. Just what Christ has had to do to get us to this place. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father God, we thank you and praise you so much for these great texts of the Old Testament. Lord, we know they can be hard. We know they can make us feel incredibly uncomfortable. But Heavenly Father God, we thank you so much for the soaring line of grace. And in the midst of real desperation, in the midst of genuine panic, in, in the midst of wondering really what is going on, you are working tirelessly to bring about an incredible legacy of grace. Heavenly Father God, as we approach the Lord's table tonight, we thank you so much that we have a chance to repent and a chance to start again because you have broken the back of sin through your Son, Jesus Christ, who went to unbelievable lengths to get us here, who died on a cross and who rose again so that we might really know what grace feels like. Heavenly Father God, thank you so much for your restoration. We pray that you would be with us now for the rest of this evening as we enjoy taking this meal together. May we truly eat and remember. In your strong name, amen.